what we found in the report is that there are six cryptocurrencies that use proof of work that are significant. To think of Bitcoin as digital gold and say, well, that's not money because its value is not stable and it's essentially fixed supply. So it's not going to be used for transactions and therefore I'm not interested. Because of the scale of Facebook, governments in Europe and in North America reacted pretty strongly. Very high degrees of concern, shall These we say. These central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, they look like a fork of the digital version of their fiat money. Why would they bother creating a whole digital currency? It doesn't actually sit in your wallet. Your wallet has the keys to access that asset on the chain and to tell that asset that it can move to another place. A little bit more sophistication in the instruments that are available. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is D5? What is AMM? And what do they mean? Welcome to the OrionX Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas and technology that are changing the world. Usually about this time of year, the analysts at OrionX get together and discuss the state of the market in the technology areas that we track. In this episode, my colleague Steve Perno and I look at a short history of cryptocurrencies over the past decade. So here in one place, we run through and explain the major new concepts that were introduced over the years and take stock of their progress. When we scheduled our recording, we had no idea that Bitcoin was going to go on a significant upswing. Within a month, it's gone from about $17,000 to over $27,000. We'll see how this comment ages as we look back and given the price volatility that Bitcoin has experienced. Also the usual disclaimer, which we repeat at the end. What you hear is not, nor is it intended to be, financial or legal advice. Here's the episode. Welcome everyone to OrionX Download. We were thinking that it's time to do another state of the market podcast about cryptocurrencies and blockchain with my colleague Stephen Perno. Hello, Steve. How are you? Hi, Shaheen. Good to be here. Now, we scheduled this a few weeks ago for this time, not knowing that just 36 hours before our recording, Bitcoin was going to go on a tear. So what happened there? Let's talk about that since it's so topical. Sure. Well, what's happened is uh, what we believe the drivers are that some very big investment commitments have been made from various places. The news that people have most heard about has been the investment by MicroStrategy, and they decided to put their entire corporate treasury into Bitcoin. And at the time they did it, it was $450 million. And given the increase in price, it's now probably two-thirds of a billion dollars. And then just a few days ago, they said, well, this isn't enough. We want more. And so they've floated a convertible debenture that pays less than 1%. That's been oversubscribed in an amount of similar, about two-thirds of a billion dollars. And so that means they're going to end up with more than a billion dollars of Bitcoin on their balance sheet, in addition to some very low interest debt that they'll pay off. So they're really committed to it. But they're also, just in the last two or three days, I've seen announcements on two hedge funds, one in the US and one in the UK, have announced that they're putting in or have put in hundreds of millions. The one in the UK was 2.7% of their entire assets under management. And then we've seen some other big names in the investment community say that they're looking to invest in Bitcoin as well. So there's just some momentum that has significant buying power behind it. And clearly the buying has been going on. 
Yeah, generally, the other time when it shot up back in 2017, when it got to nearly $18,000 before it came back, back then I remember us discussing that this was because it was easier for people to buy it because exchanges were coming online like Coinbase that made it pretty easy. This time it's PayPal that's made it easy, that there was favorable legal environment that gave people some comfort that this thing could go a little bit further. And there was new demand. And every time this happens, more and more people come in. But what a difference a decade makes, right? Back in 2010, it started out being 0.0025 cents. And I remember that famous story that someone had used Bitcoin to pay for pizza, $25, and they used 10,000 Bitcoins. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, 10,000 Bitcoins at $20,000 is a different story. Well, that's right. And it turns out they got two whole pizzas for that. But... (laughs) I put together a graph that uh, started from when Bitcoin was about two years old, because by then it was starting to have decent price history with daily prices. And I used the $100 bill, the Benjamin, as the (laughs) figure of merit for this particular graph. And it started at basically 100 Bitcoin per dollar. And then, you know, that was after two years already. So we're talking about 2011. And now, you know, 100 Benjamins won't get you half a Bitcoin. But the way it shot through $20,000 some 27 hours ago. So I thought that this whole walk down memory lane is a good opportunity to go through a short history of crypto, starting with when Bitcoin was really it. This is just before Ethereum came on. And it was all about consensus algorithms. And in fact, like the main conference in the space is called consensus because of it. So let's start with that. What was the situation like back then? Sure. Well, the general class of problems that Bitcoin had to solve goes by the name of Byzantine fault tolerance. And really, the problem is also known as the Byzantine general problem, Mm -hmm. where you have a group of generals are trying to attack a, a fort or a city, you know, behind walls, and they don't know how to communicate with each other effectively. And maybe you have a rogue general, or at least you want to keep everybody coordinated and on the same page for strategy. And that's related to the the problem of counterfeiting, which goes by the terminology of double spending. So really what it amounts to is how can you prove that you've got a single copy of a ledger that is a true copy and that encodes transactions and that those transactions are encoded only once and that if there's a cryptocurrency associated with them, it gets spent one time instead of being double spent. In other words, I can't use the same coin in the same time frame to buy something from store A and also try to spend that same unit of the currency at store B and essentially cheat store B. So you need some form of this uh, Byzantine generals problem solved. And what Satoshi came up with was proof of work. And proof of work is a methodology that goes by terminology of mining. And it says that you have these transactions in blocks and then you chain them together. And uh, only one miner, which means one computer, can record that block onto this universal decentralized ledger that anybody can hold a copy of, but that they can't tamper with. And the reason why they can't tamper with it is because these different blocks are chained together and they're hashing algorithms. And there's a hash problem that you have to solve. And the first one that solves it has done the proof of work and is able to commit that block of transactions. 
So one block that I had in the early days was to just understand when we say proof of work, what work? What are you talking about? It took me a while to get that work was just some busy work that had no other value, that you just had to spend some energy and commit to doing a bunch of otherwise useless work just to prove that your intentions are right. And that if you do so, you have a shot at being incentivized by being selected as the miner and then you get all the rewards. And it also prevents you from trying to cheat the system. So it simultaneously incentivizes good behavior and punishes bad behavior. That's right. And that chain of blocks requires that more than half of all the aggregate compute mining power is put into the sort of one and true chain. And if somebody tries to create a a fork on the side, it's not going to hold up. Basically, the longest chain is the one that matters. Mm -hmm. So they are sort of engaged in this lottery, starting with something called a nonce, which is a guess, and then running through not just trillions, but even more guesses than that. And so they're up into the exahashes domain. In the case of Bitcoin, uh, really 100 exahashes per second of all the aggregate computing power in the world of over a million miners are trying to guess the solution. And the solution can't be figured out ahead of time without trying trial and error all these examples. So it's sort of a lottery situation. One could also call it proof of ASIC and proof of electricity because you've got to have the right sort of ASIC design that's most efficient for solving this problem. And then you've got to generate the electricity for these crypto mining rigs. Right. That turns out to be the principal operating cost is just the electricity you burn. So we do a crypto mining report twice a year. We did the last one in conjunction with supercomputing 20. Uh, so that was really just a month ago that we put that report out. The famous crypto super 500. And this is our fifth one. So we've been doing this for two years, going into our third year. And what we found in the report is that collectively, there are six cryptocurrencies that use proof of work that are significant. If you look at the top 50 mining pools, and they're, of course, Bitcoin and then Ethereum, but also these two hard forks of Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. Right. And then LTC. And then the last one is Zcash. And uh, it turns out that 95% of the economic value is accruing to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right. In about a two to one ratio. Yeah. It's always been the 800 pound gorilla and even more so with this recent run up. So right after Bitcoin got itself established, Ethereum came on the scene. And I remembered that Ethereum was all about smart contracts and how it was simplifying that because Bitcoin comes with a bit of a scripting language, but Ethereum came up with a better one or a more complete one with solidity. So let's talk a little bit about that. I would say it actually complexifies it because Agreed. the for the reason you just gave, which is that the Bitcoin scripting language is a non-Turing complete language. And so it's constrained in what it can do. And it's really designed primarily for just the transaction world. Ethereum, when Vitalik Buterin designed it, he decided to go for a Turing complete scripting language in order to support all kinds of potential smart contracts. And there is this sort of world computer uh, uh-huh. meme that's been attached to it. So the idea is that it can do all sorts of things. And it has started out also as a proof of work, although the ultimate goal is to take it to proof of stake. And it has been the most popular platform for people to generate uh, new cryptocurrencies, ICOs, 
and other sorts of smart contracts like exchange offerings or uh, security token kinds of offerings. And the, really the latest craze is the DeFi, decentralized finance. Right. That's really mostly about crypto borrowing, crypto lending, and staking crypto so you can earn interest rewards on that. In agreement with you, I think for smart contracts, a Turing complete language is a bug, not a feature. Because the good news is that you can do a lot with it. The bad news is that you cannot prove correctness in those languages. It's very difficult to do that. And you're liable to make mistakes and it just becomes too complicated. My personal view, and I think other people have done this too, is to build a smart contract language that is essentially a state machine where you can apply mathematical rigor to it and just prove correctness based on the semantics of the language. Sounds like we agree on that. We do. And the other reason why you might want to take that approach, a state machine approach, is for reasons of security. With the Turing Complete approach, you expose a lot more potential security holes. Very good point. And I know there are like products that now look at your smart contract and verify them. But let's go to what you were saying is that Ethereum became a platform on top of which you could build new coins. So that led to the thousands of alternative coins, altcoins, and how many of them now? There are over 7,500 currently. Over 7,500. It, it's mind-boggling. Well, because and it's like easy to do, right? So people do it, it. It is easy to do. There's this ERC-20 standard on top of Ethereum that allows you to create these pretty quickly. And then the question becomes, okay, what's the purpose of that altcoin? What utility does it have? What sort of consensus algorithm does it have? How do you kickstart it? And we find in many cases, what happens is there's an airdrop. And uh, so people raise funds and then they keep some portion of the coins for the founders and for future development expenses. And then they put some back into the community in exchange for the investment, which would typically come in in the form of Ethereum or Bitcoin or maybe one of the new stable coins that we'll talk about later. So let's talk about airdrop. Airdrop is what? Airdrop is sort of like quantitative easing. <laughs> it's just <laughs> print, printing money, dropping it from a helicopter. You know, it's the Ben Bernanke helicopter drop. <laughs> you, you're deciding ahead of time that you're going to have a billion of these things and you're going to keep 30% for the founders and 15% for foundation and 15% for future development and the rest you're going to distribute to the people that actually put up the hard currency. So it's to prime the pump, basically. Yes. And then people can adopt various approaches to decide whether they want to increase the supply over time or, in fact, maybe decrease the supply with something called a burn, mm -hmm. where you burn some of the outstanding tokens in order to tighten the supply. It's like a stock buyback. It is just like a stock buyback. So this, of course, also led to ICOs. You mentioned ICOs, initial coin offerings. Let's talk about that. What did that do? Well, what that did was allow anybody and everybody to try and get into the game. And really, it was a way to get around security issuance regulations, trying not to file with the SEC or whoever the appropriate regulators are in the country in question. But then also to create a token that would have some specialized purpose or some set of target markets or purposes. Uh, for example, early on, one of the early ones was Filecoin. So they were going to be NR, a way to store files in a distributed, decentralized exchange sort of way and to tokenize it. 
Right, so I remember this is when the whole discussion of is it a security token or a utility token and how do you navigate through laws that were not even really set yet at that time. And that led to just some model that people would follow to be on the safe side of it, such as it was. That was really a hot topic back then. Yes, and SAFT was a sort of lightweight approach. But really what's happened is that SEC came down on a lot of these. You know, They looked at Bitcoin and said, okay, that's not a security. They looked at Ethereum. They said, that's not a security because those things were already well-established. And in the case of Bitcoin, there's nobody because Satoshi was pseudo-anonymous and had disappeared. So there's nobody that could be called in to testify before Congress. And so what they did do, though, is they came down on a number of other offerings. And typically what that caused people to do was to avoid issuance in the U.S. except to accredited investors and to use this SAFT process. So through fits and starts, there's evolved some way to try to do this that's uh, consistent with what the regulators want. So SAFT is Simple Agreement for Future Tokens, right? And this was a way of saying how the supply was going to be monitored and governed and distributed and it was to try to put some predictability into the system so that you could present it to lawmakers, right? That's correct. All right. So the other thing that was happening in that time frame was really all these crypto wallets. Suddenly it was, okay, I'm going to buy some coins. Where am I going to put them? And there were software wallets. And then the craze then became hardware wallets. So let's talk about a couple of the famous ones there and which ones we liked and used. Yeah. Well, the wallets started out as web wallets first, and then later people developed mobile wallets. So those are both in the class of software wallets, basically. And that allows you to control your keys. And the important thing to understand is that the cryptocurrency sits in the internet on the decentralized blockchain, which may be more or less decentralized, depending on the crypto in question. It doesn't actually sit in your wallet. Your wallet has the keys to access that asset on the chain and to tell that asset that it can move to another place. And then people came up with hardware wallets, which are basically USB sticks that have some particular software and security features and maybe have some thumbnail sort of interface. Ledger is perhaps the most famous of those. So those can be loaded and then you can keep it offline. Right. Um, It's a piece of paper where you back it up by actually writing down your keywords, right? Well, there's something called a passphrase, and that can be either 12 or 24 keywords. And that's kind of a backup. If you lose access or your password or something, you've got this key phrase that you can use to input in either into a hardware wallet or a software wallet. This is a good time to say that these, a lot of these blockchains, maybe not all of them at this point, but they are really immutable. There is no going back that if you lose your password, it's over. It's just done. There's no way to recover it any other way. This is not like Visa where you've got chargebacks. <laughs> right. right? One, once the transaction is committed, it's done. And in principle, there's no way to roll it back. Now, in fact, there have been some rollbacks on some of these. You can't really roll back on Bitcoin. There isn't a way to do it. But in the Ethereum community and in some of these other coins, when they've had hacks or very strange events, then by consensus, they have rolled things back. But it's been quite unusual. 
You know, it's almost a force majeure mm. kind of event to roll the blockchain back. But normally, normal transactions, once they're committed to the chain, that's it. And so if the vendor didn't ship to you, you've got to address it another way. That gets us to exchanges. In the early days of Bitcoin, some exchanges spectacularly had issues and lost people's money. And, and it wasn't until maybe four or five years ago, perhaps, when exchanges became more real and more trusted and more serious. Is that your experience? I think that's a good summary. I mean, the most famous was the Mt. Gox in Japan, which was just about the first exchange. And so people didn't have that many choices. And they had a problem scaling, perhaps because there weren't as many exchanges. And a number of these exchanges have been hacked over time. And that one was hacked. And it's not even clear exactly whether, oh, yeah. you know, there was insider dealing on some of these exchanges and hacks. But with time, these things have established reputations. They've improved their security and they have good cold storage capabilities where they have air gaps, where they store the Bitcoin on the other side of the mm -hmm. air gap. So you can have a wallet on an exchange and it's not your Bitcoin. The exchange is holding it for you in custody, but you can request them to put the cryptocurrency into cold storage and that increases your security level. So people will typically have it in a warm wallet if they want to access it fairly frequently or they want to do trading with it and they can then put it into a cold wallet for longer term storage. It's kind of like a checking savings account, right? Kind of. Yeah. And then we had decentralized exchanges where you could just buy and sell without a centralized exchange. Did those take off or? Yeah, I think they're continuing to grow. But one of the reasons they were developed was to have a higher level of privacy and anonymity for the users. It's almost like a Napster, I suppose, in some gross sense. But the exchange algorithmically does the trading uh, for you. Uh -huh. And it's not run by a corporation per se. It's just sort of there, mm -hmm. software running. And it's as such, it means that people aren't maybe aren't going through the KYC. And that means they can't accept fiat. They can just accept tokens. And some of the non-DEXs, non-decentralized exchanges are that way as well, or have been, that they would initially only accept tokens, a few tokens in order to fund. But most of them now have ability to accept some kind of fiat, at least in major currencies, and they put people through KYC processes. That's one thing that has really come down firmly in the last few years from all the major authorities, at least in the Western nations, that adhere to a common set of standards around KYC. Right, right. So KYC, for those of you who may not know, is know your customer, and it goes with anti-money laundering AML. So usually you see KYC slash AML, which of course is a good thing in many places, but it's also costly to do and a little bit complicated to do. So it's always a topic of discussion, especially in a world that came out of decentralization and zero trust and a bit of a rebellious undertone to it. So that continues to be a discussion. Right. But it's been one of the things that has been necessary in order to entice institutional money to come in. Right. And for you, governments you know, to you allow it. You might have, and for governments to allow it, you might have a random hedge fund guy take his personal money and put it onto to a decentralized exchange or some exchange that a few years ago didn't have KYC. But if he wants to put the money that he runs for other people that's in the formalized hedge fund, if he wants to take some of that, 
we'll put it into Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or some other cryptocurrency, then he's really got to obey the rules that are coming from the governments. And that means KYC AML. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about initial exchange offerings, because just like initial coin offerings, IEOs became a thing for a while. And they still are. And what an exchange offering is, is an ICO that's run by an exchange and that has a particular utility associated with the exchange. So essentially what it does is it gives rebates or dividends back to the purchaser. And those could be in the form of discounts in terms of transaction fees on the exchange. It could be a share of the profits that the exchange is earning. It could be just a bonus related to the total amount of trading that's happened. But it's almost like airline miles. Mm. It's some form of dividend of a sort of incentive that's being paid in the same cryptocurrency, usually with these IEOs, exchange offerings, they create a new token and then they pay these incentives in the form of that token. And that token trades on the exchange and has a market price. And so it can then be converted to Bitcoin or some stable coin and eventually back to fiat if that's what the user wants. And then after that, what became the craze was stable coins. I remember for the better part of a year, stable coins were it with the Tether being the leader, USDT. Yeah, Tether's, what, three or four years old now. And for a while, it was almost the only one. Another big one is Paxos. Now there are a whole bunch. They're mostly tied to the US dollar. There are a few that are tied to grams of gold. I think there are a couple of euro ones now. The big news was the Libra announcement from Facebook. And They've now changed the name on that. But that one had an interesting wrinkle because when they announced it, what, it's now a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. coming on almost two years, they were going to make it a basket of currencies, a basket of the most important currencies. So a mix of dollars and euro and pounds and yen and because they felt they couldn't do the Chinese yuan because it's not as easily traded on exchanges. They substituted Singapore dollar in the basket. And because of the scale of Facebook, Governments in Europe and in North America reacted pretty strongly. Very high degrees of concern, shall we say. (laughs) That's right. Why are you doing this? And why are you creating a basket that looks like our SDR in the IMF? So there's been such difficult pushback on Libra that they were not able to introduce it until next year. And that they've gone back to saying, well, it's going to be a stable coin tied to fiat and we're going to start with the US dollar. So that's how it's going to start. And they've got a couple dozen members in an association. And I think it's going to look like the other ones, except it will be enabled by Facebook's platforms, Messenger and so forth. Mm-hmm. So now, it's are... going to have a very broad scope of interest, most likely. Right, because they just have so much force globally. Now, these stable coins are by definition stable, meaning they don't fluctuate much. So how do they achieve that? How do they make sure that one USDT is more or less the same as one dollar? Right. Well, what they do in principle is that they open a bank account with a million dollars actual U.S. dollars in the bank account that's backing the million dollars that they issue on their blockchain. So in theory, there's a one-to-one. And in practice, what they're going to do is they're not just going to have cash. They're going to have treasuries, T-bills, backing because they expect not everybody's going to take all the money out by tomorrow. 
Right. So they'll earn a little bit of interest from those and they'll be able to run their operations with that. And these things, you know, trade on exchanges like anything else, but they tend to stay close to parity with the dollar. It's almost like a money market or the idea that you keep the money market tied directly to the dollar at one to one. The difference here is that stable coins do not pay. In the way they're initially issued, they don't pay interest. But what has arisen is DeFi that we'll talk about. Um, so there are ways to earn interest, but the issuer does not pay interest on these things. So mm-hmm. it's like a money market fund that pays no interest. So you called Libra corp coin because it's a corporate that issues a coin. And then the counterpart to that is government coin. So let's talk about that. Because you're right, after Libra came, especially after Libra came, it's not like the governments weren't paying attention to this. It looked like they were kind of chipping away at it. But when Libra came, it lit a fire under everybody. So they hurried up and tried to claim the space. So where did that start and where is it now? Sure. Well, we have three categories. We have the private coins, which are basically, they're not too many. There's really a few proof of work coins. There's Bitcoin, a couple of hard forks, Litecoin, things like that. Then we have the stable coins and, you know, Libra and people like JP Morgan, they have a JP coin or JPM coin. So these are issued by corporations and managed by those. You've got, of course, XRP from Ripple Labs. So all of these are managed by corporations. And that's why we've given them the moniker Corp Coins. They are focused either on the liquidity for utility in transactions and may or may not be stable, but they're really focused on the spectrum of liquidity and utility, transactional utility more than, say, store of value. And I think that's true for all the Corp Coins now. Then you have the government saying, well, wait a minute, we really need to take a look at this. And when I say the government, I mean all major central banks and governments in US, Europe, and around the world in a large number of countries. So a central bank digital currency is a centralized currency that's issued on some kind of ledger, digital ledger. It might not be a blockchain. It might take another form. And it's issued either directly to businesses and users or indirectly through the banking system, through designated providers. And when I say the banking system, I want to generalize a bit and say it can also be through payment companies. And the the best known of these and the furthest advanced is the Chinese central bank digital currency known as DCEP. And it has been trialed at relatively large scale. So it's in the process of being rolled out. It's sort of in beta state, if you will. And they've got about 12 banks and payment providers, including people like Alipay, who are able to um, act as intermediaries for this. So these central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, they look like a fork of the digital version of their fiat money. Why would they bother creating a whole digital currency and not just say, hey, you know, the yuan is already digital anyway. Why bother do a different coin? There are a few different motivations. One is that it could allow them to have direct payments to their population. And as we have concepts like UBI, universal basic income, getting some interest, or we've seen now we've had special pandemic payments with COVID direct to people. This could provide a more efficient way of making those kinds of payments. In addition, it's a different approach than the current banking system, which 
we normally think of as a fractional reserve banking system, but isn't exactly that anymore. Banks are constrained based on their equity capital and different criteria. This might allow the central banks, if they choose to do so, to actually bypass the banking system. So there might be accounts directly between individuals or businesses and the central bank. So that that's a whole interesting area because of yeah. the deposit intermediation that could happen away from the banks. A second reason is it's going to allow extremely fine-grained tracking of transactions in an economy. You can instantly know where money is going and for what purpose. And so this is a dream for the econometric staff at the central banks, right? They'll be able to monitor in much more detail things that they now monitor on a monthly and a quarterly basis. So this obviously, on the one hand, feels like surveillance. On the other hand, it feels like really good data that can be used for public good, right? So that's also part of the complexity. It's exactly that. And in the case of the Chinese currency, the concern that's been expressed is that this will be tied into their social capital system. That's already happening with Alipay anyway. Mm. So that's a payments platform that's being monitored by the government and tied into the social capital system. And they'll certainly be able to do that effectively with the DCEP, central bank currency, or digital one. Mm -hmm. Okay, that takes us to recent times with systems like ETH again, Ethereum and EOS, EOS, and the emergence of DeFi and AMM and a little bit more sophistication in the instruments that are available. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is DeFi? What is AMM? And what do they mean? Well, DeFi is about borrowing and lending, essentially, in terms of its applications currently. It stands for decentralized finance. In principle, it could be any sort of fintech, new financial technology that's being run on a blockchain on a decentralized basis using smart contracts, uh, using different tokens, interacting with exchanges. At present, most of the action is around staking cryptocurrency. And there have been a number of new cryptocurrencies and tokens that have been created, especially for this purpose. Mostly, they've been created on top of Ethereum. And you stake those tokens or you stake existing cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or one of the stable coins and you can earn interest or rewards. Yeah. So it's a way to borrow money, it's a way to lend money. And the reason why you earn interest is because there are people who want to borrow these cryptos so they can basically speculate with them on the exchanges and use leverage. So it facilitates the use of leverage or hedging if that's what people want to do. And it facilitates more quickly moving between different cryptocurrencies. I think it's amazing that that market actually exists. And that is also a testimony to how this whole area is becoming more mature, isn't it? If you create something, people will want to trade it or want to bet <laughs> on it or want to speculate with it. That's right. So in the home stretch, let's get back to how we started this conversation, which is what I call the return of Bitcoin. Having climbed a slow climb over the past two years, maybe more than two years, it's now just on a tear. So to me, this means that every time it does it, it becomes a little bit clearer, a little bit easier to agree that this thing is an established asset class. And you think that way, I believe. So let's talk a little bit about that and what the naysayers might say now. Sure. This is not tulips because the tulips only lasted for a few months in terms of the boom and crash. This is something that's been around a dozen years. 
And unlike tulips, which can decay, Bitcoin is essentially eternal. Mm, uh, we can expect that once Bitcoin is created, it's not destroyed. It may be lost by the owner if they lose their keys to their wallet, but people are getting better and better at taking care of that. And now there are custody solutions more and more. And in fact, the authorities in the US, the OCC, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, has said that banks are allowed to custody Bitcoin. We already have existing players who are doing that. So it's here, it's staying around, it's persisting. We call this the Lindy effect for technology and for memes and ideas. And the Lindy effect is pretty well established now. I look at it as monetary technology for the 21st century a new type of monetary technology. We had gold for a couple of millennia, a bit longer than that. And then fiat money arose, especially in the past hundred years, and even more so since the link with gold was entirely broken in 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window. We've been on a pure fiat exchange standard, and we see how the debts have ballooned under that standard. Bitcoin has a much more conservative monetary policy, a disinflationary policy because of these halvings. One of the long-term reasons why the price goes up is because each halving every four years roughly causes a supply shock because the supply gets cut in half. The mining reward for each 10-minute block gets cut in half. So the rate of inflation gets cut in half, and we're not used to that. We're used to sort of inflation always being around, sometimes increasing, sometimes decreasing. This inflation, because it's algorithmically established, there's no committee to decide. You can't mess with it. You can't mess with it, and it's just going to keep cranking down. It's 1.8% now. It'll be 0.9% four years from now, and it will keep dropping. You could fork it and have a different model for what you forked, but the original you, chain remains yeah. untouched. You could fork it and you'd have to have a very strong consensus in order to get a viable outcome with the fork thing. The, the forks off of Bitcoin have not been particularly successful. No, that's right. Now, one certainly a mental block I had for a good number of years, and it obviously was very costly, was to think of Bitcoin as digital gold and say, well, that's not money because its value is not stable and it's essentially fixed supply. So it's not going to be used for transactions and therefore I'm not interested. And it took me a few years to realize that, well, actually just that is really pretty interesting and highly valuable, which is basically what it is. But we should probably talk about Lightning Network, these so-called layer two technologies as a way of bringing transactions and daily use into Bitcoin. Is that going to happen? Where is Lightning? Yeah, it is happening. It's been a bit slower than I thought it might be, but there are multiple layer two technologies. The best known for Bitcoin are Lightning, Liquid, and Wrap Bitcoin. Lightning is a second layer that allows you to have transactions occur more rapidly with less security, but it makes it more appropriate for small things. If you want to just buy a cup of coffee, you can essentially have that transaction be recorded on the Lightning layer. And then what you do is you batch a bunch of transactions together and commit that as a single transaction onto the main Bitcoin blockchain. The liquid one that I mentioned is a side chain. So that runs Bitcoin alongside. It's also more efficient. Then there's one called wrapped Bitcoin, and that's actually on top of Ethereum. It's, it's an ERC-20, mm. but allows you to commit Bitcoin onto that layer. That can make it easier to move onto exchanges or Again, to use for things that need more responsiveness. But there's always a trade-off. You lose security when you do that. 
So what next? What do you see coming next year for cryptocurrencies in general? Any predictions? Well, I think the biggest action right now is with the CBDCs, with right. stable coins more generally, but particularly with the government experimentation and exploration of their own fiat-linked stable coins mm-hmm. called CBDCs. It's certainly being studied in Europe, in the UK, in Canada. The Fed is indeed studying it. There will be a Fed coin at some point and many other central banks around the world. Bahamas has introduced mm-hmm. their their sand dollar. It's available to everybody at this point. So they and China are two of the first. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how these roll out and what effect they have on the banking system and what the interrelationship is between the government-issued stablecoins and the non-governmental stablecoins. I think they're going to impact the stablecoin market, mm-hmm. take share, and they may also disintermediate deposits from the banking system and they will interact i think over time they'll start interacting with defi right so you've got these different players that all have touch points with each other it will be interesting to see how that system evolves one thing i see is better development of the software stack and making it easier for new applications to be created and one of those applications that i expect to see more of is the so-called non-fungible tokens for things that are exclusive and unique. I feel there is market demand for things like that. Mm-hmm. Things like art. Things like for art, example. yeah. Or sports tickets or concert tickets or things like that. Yeah, an interesting set of use cases, certainly. Well, excellent. Good catch up, probably the last decade of cryptocurrencies here. So we can conclude now. I think we probably want to remind our listeners that this is not investment advice. In fact, it's not really any advice of any kind. (laughs) 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 But thanks for being with us. And thanks for remembering that, as I like to say, all kinds of walks down Wall Street are random. (laughs) Our our advice is do your own research. There's a whole lot to research. Uh, Go to Orion X and you'll see some white papers, including our report on the fifth crypto super 500 list. And I've written a bunch of articles on Medium. So if you go to Medium and search for my last name, P-E-R-R-E-N-O-D, you can find those. Definitely. And we're going to put that in the link as well. Well, excellent. Thank you. Take care. Happy holidays, everyone. And until next time. Happy holidays.